0: It's 1650, and Giovanni Benedetto Castiglione is the best droughtsman in Italy, the Rembrandt of the South. He can draw anything you want, especially if it involves animals or sex or murder. The animals entering Noah's Ark? Yes. The animals exiting Noah's Ark? Yes, again. Cain killing Abel with a donkey's jawbone? For sure. A naked satyr relaxing near a statue of Priapus, the god of enormous male genitalia? Absolutely. But Castiglione has other interests as well. He's thrown his sister off her roof? He's accused his brother of being a thief and an assassin and had him locked in jail. He's nearly killed his nephew in a fistfight. Nice guy. People call him Il Ilgrichetto, the little Greek, even though he's not particularly little or Greek. The church thinks that's our guy. So, in 1650... Castiglione is working on a commission for the high altar of a new church in Osimo, a small town in central Italy. An enormous painting of the Virgin Mary, Mother of Jesus. Not a portrait or an icon, but a concept, not even officially adopted by the Pope yet, called the Immaculate Conception. The idea that the Virgin Mary was born without sin. Castiglione paints her standing atop a crescent moon, a symbol of chastity, surrounded by angels and the saints Francis of Assisi and Anthony of Padua. Her arms spread in welcome and prayer. An enormous painting, more than 12 feet high, now one of the largest paintings at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and popular, You can get yourself a copy on Amazon for $9.99. Castiglione delivers the painting, and then a few weeks after finishing, in October 1650, he and his brother flee from Rome. They leave so quickly, in fact, that they bring nothing with them, not even their underwear. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, a story about what we'll do for our beliefs, and how all of this is subject to change. I'm Tim Gearing. Let's go back to the 4th century, the 300s, in Rome. Christians are feeling pretty good about their new religion. Yes, it was not that long ago that St. Peter may have been hung upside down and beheaded in the Circus Maximus, and St. Eustace was roasted inside a metal bowl, and hundreds, maybe thousands of Christians were fed to the lions and other animals in the Colosseum. But Emperor Constantine has converted to Christianity after seeing a cross in the sky during a battle. He's giving Christians their property back. Like, our bad. Sorry about all the death. And now they can focus on working out the details of the religion itself. Like, who was Jesus, anyway? What do we mean that Jesus was the Son of God? Was he made by God, or was he always around, or what? What? So, in 325, Constantine gathers some 300 Christian leaders from across the Roman world, the so-called Council of Nicaea, right? And they decide, after a lot of wrangling, that Jesus has always been around, just like God. No beginning, no end. And anyone who doesn't believe this is hereby exiled and the writing burned. Oh. And also, let's celebrate Easter when we want to, not during Jewish Passover. Forget those guys. But soon enough, another question comes up. If Jesus is part man, because he shows up on earth as a human, right? Doesn't that make him a sinner, actually? If we're gonna say all people are born with sin, Ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the original sin, right? How would that not include Jesus? And if Jesus is a sinner, how can he possibly save the world? So, in 431, a new Roman emperor convenes the church leaders again. And again, they argue for months Do we really believe this idea of original sin? Or was that only Adam and Eve's problem? And in the end, it's decided. Yep, everyone really is born with sin. It's in our nature. We are all inclined to evil in the eyes of God. Except Jesus, he's good. And anyone who doesn't believe this is hereby exiled and the writing burned. Well, eventually people start to think, if Jesus was born without sin, that must mean the Virgin Mary was also born without sin. Otherwise, you know, she would have passed it on to her son. So, by the 1100s, people in France are starting to hold a feast every year on December 8th, when Mary was supposedly conceived by her parents, celebrating her so-called immaculate conception, when she was conceived miraculously without any sin at all, original or otherwise. Now, some church leaders hear about this and are like, What the? You guys are celebrating a conception? Come on now. Sex is sinful. You know that. St. Bernard writes, We can never enough wonder that some of you could have the boldness to introduce a feast which the church has not the least knowledge of, which is neither supported by reason nor backed by any tradition. How could they conjure up a holy day on account of a thing which is not holy in itself? He complains. The celebration either honors sin or authorizes a false holiness. St. Thomas Aquinas, too, is like, what's even the point of Jesus, the Redeemer of sins, if we're going to say his mom is already perfect? Nevertheless, The celebration spreads in France, England, Spain. People start writing legends about the Immaculate Conception and how exactly Mary's parents accomplished this. Eventually, it shows up in art. In 1305, the great painter Giotto is commissioned to create a fresco in Padua, Italy, showing Mary's parents at the Golden Gate of Jerusalem, kissing. The first kiss, apparently, in art history. Which is the moment, right there, when it all happens. No sex needed. Let's jump ahead a bit to Castilleón. Born in 1609 in Genoa, Italy, into a poor family, he's apprenticed as a teenager to an artist named Giovanni Battista Paghi. Now, Paghi is maybe a great role model as an artist. As a human, not so much. He was born into wealth, so he can't join the Professional Artists Guild. Instead, he gives his art away to patrons, with the hope that they'll gift him some financial reward in return. And when one patron doesn't, he kills the guy. So, yeah. Castiglione learns not just the craft from Poggy, he also learns the business, if you will. So when Poggy dies, and Castiglione goes to Rome around age 20, he's ready for the literally cutthroat art world Of the 1600s. He starts out rather humbly with animal drawings, scenes of sheep and donkeys and goats out in the fields. He's good at it, and it pays, evidently. And he perfects a new technique using oil paint on paper that becomes his trademark. But he doesn't want to be pegged as a drawer of barn animals. Nature is considered the lowest of subjects compared to, say, the crucifixion. So he enrolls in the Artists' Academy of Rome to learn some decorum, the proper way of doing things. Maybe he learned something about art because his work starts to become much more diverse. Decorum? Well... One night, in the spring of 1635, Castillion goes to the home of an aristocrat, where four artists are improvising skits. One is called Nocturnal Surprises, which, well, this is a family show. Another is called Painting Exalted, in which a nobleman tries to marry his daughter off to a painter. And somehow, in the course of these improvised comedies, Castiglione's work comes up. The artist joked that he's such a bad droughtsman that he can only draw with the help of a template, a cartoon of some sort. Well, Castiglione doesn't think that's so funny. He actually never draws with the help of a template. So, supposedly, after the show, he fires at one of the artists with a blunderbuss a kind of primitive shotgun, right? And then he leaves town for Naples. He also creates a drawing of himself sitting with a book, which reads, I am a genius, Giovanni Benedetto Castiglione. In 1646 or so, he's painting a work for a chapel in Genoa, his hometown, right? Right? commissioned by the doge, or ruler of the Genoine republic and his family. But other artists who are jealous of him sabotage the deal. So when he presents the final painting at court, he's told, No, actually, we don't want this, but we'll still pay you. Castiglione hears this, draws his dagger from his belt, and in front of the court, slashes the painting to pieces. Not decorum. And yet, the church keeps hiring him. In the early 1600s, the church is hiring everyone. Let's back up for a moment. After the Protestant Reformation begins in the 1500s, pushing the Catholic Church to reform, the Church says no, and the Counter-Reformation is on, right? The Church pushes back with everything from wars to inquisitions to art. Pope Urban VIII commissions every artist who's any kind of artist to fill Rome with the power and glory of the Catholic Church even as his armies are struggling to hold off the Protestants. The Habsburg Empire, which rules most of Europe, is like, hold on, how about this? Whoever rules a principality, and there's more than a thousand of these states in the Habsburg Empire, right, can decide what the state religion is, Protestant or Catholic. And the peasants need to be cool with that, or leave. Now in practice, many Catholic rulers are pretty tolerant, at least in Northern Europe, lest they be thrown from their castles by angry Lutherans. But soon the Catholics are really losing ground, especially in the German states. So in 1618, the Holy Roman Emperor closes some new Protestant churches that have sprung up outside of Prague. And sure enough, the local Lutherans call in the Catholic authorities, put them on trial, and throw two of them out the window, along with their secretary, for good measure. They all survive the defenestration, a slightly shorter way of saying thrown out the window. They're saved, according to Catholics, by the Virgin Mary. Or, according the Protestants, by a huge pile of dung below the window. But now, it's war. And what starts out as a series of these small religious skirmishes turns into an all-out brawl. The Thirty Years' War, as we call it now. Sweden, of all places, joins in and conquers a good chunk of Northern Europe, France, which is Catholic, joins the Protestants to seize power from its Catholic neighbors, who they never really liked. Eventually, well, in 30 years, about 6 to 12 million people have died, mostly from disease and famine. In some parts of Germany, half the population is dead. In 1648, people say, enough, this is stupid. No one's winning. Well, except for Sweden and France and the Netherlands, which has been fighting its own 80 years war with Spain to gain its independence. It's basically a draw. When the peace treaty is drawn up, countries agree to bring back the same old rules about religion but with a twist. You can have a state religion, but no more forced conversions. No more exiling. It's the start of religious tolerance in Europe. The Catholic dream of a Holy Roman Empire spreading over the world, ruled by the Pope, is dead. And so was the Pope. Pope Urban VIII, who had commissioned so much art, The peace treaty, as one scholar puts it, represents the majestic portal, which leads from the old world into the new. Of course, not everyone wants to go through the portal, right? The new pope is like, what's so majestic about the new world? Keep your new world. We'll keep the old, thank you, with its mystery and art and... Pope, who's with me? And Spain, licking its wounds, says, We are. Now, about that Immaculate Conception. Spain has good reason to care about the Immaculate Conception, as it turns out. In 1585, Spain is in the middle of its 80-year war with the Netherlands, right? Right? trying to keep control of it, when suddenly its army is blocked by a river. It's December, it's cold, they're outnumbered, and this soldier is digging a trench around a church when he supposedly notices the painting inside of the Immaculate Conception. soldiers pray for a miracle, and sure enough, the river freezes the Spanish cross and burn all the ships in the Dutch fleet there. A big victory on December 8th, supposedly the day of the Immaculate Conception. The Spanish king declares a mandatory oath. Everyone in the government or the military has to swear to defend to the death the idea of the Immaculate Conception. Soon, Spain starts sending ambassadors to Rome to lobby for official recognition by the Pope of the mystery of the Immaculate Conception. In 1649, one year after the Spanish lose the Eighty Years' War and the Thirty Years' War, the artistic advisor to the Spanish Inquisition, and yes, that job really exists, writes down all the rules for representing the Immaculate Conception rules based on the apocalypse, as it's described in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. All pictures must show the Virgin Mary with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head, her hands in prayer, surrounded by angels and lilies and the symbols of St. Francis, with a vanquished dragon beneath her feet which is exactly, except for the dragon, how Castiglione paints her that same year, just before he and his brother skip town, very possibly after killing someone. In April 1655, Castiglione and his brother go on trial in Genoa. Not for murder, but for refusing to pay their own attorney. A man named Carlo, who's defended them at least 12 times since the brothers went on the lam five years earlier. Is this a moral person? His attorney asked in court, before reeling off the rap sheet of Giovanni, throwing his sister from the roof, putting his brother in prison, etc., etc., The attorney's family had even supplied the brothers with pots and pans and bedding and underwear. Mutandine, after they showed up empty-handed in Genoa. And this is how they thank him? Well, once again, none of this seems to matter, at least to Castiglione's clients, dukes and princes and the church. He's now one of the busiest artists in Genoa, in business with his brother and a number of assistants, including his son. He is the embodiment, in a way, of the old world, where personality and power matter more than the law, where who you know matters more than what you did. But it's a world that ultimately is disappearing. In 1664, when Castiglione dies, the Palace of Versailles opens outside Paris, a monument really to the new world of power and glory on earth, not in heaven. And the colonies in America, literally the new world, are fought over and claimed by England. Just a few decades later, Isaac Newton writes down the laws of physics, Right? And John Locke writes about reason, how everything we think of as an innate truth is actually just something we've learned from our own experience, including the existence of God. Rationalism takes hold in France and England. Church and state get further and further apart. And soon the Enlightenment is in full swing. Finally, in the mid-1800s, as Europe is consumed by revolutions, the springtime of the peoples, inspired by socialism, the Pope asked the bishops, tell me what you think, what you really think, about original sin and the Immaculate Conception. Do we still believe this? They gave him their answer and Pope Pius IX issues his bull, Ineffabilis Deus, or Ineffable God, in 1854 on December 8th, confirming the fact of original sin. That God had, quote, foreseen from all eternity the lamentable wretchedness of the entire human race, which would result from the sin of Adam. And that God had chosen Mary to bring his son into the world, and endowed her with all heavenly gifts, that this mother, ever absolutely free of all stain of sin, all fair and perfect, would possess that fullness of holy innocence and sanctity, that which, under God, one cannot even imagine anything greater. And at last, it's done. Four years later, in 1858, the Virgin Mary supposedly appears to a 14-year-old girl in Lord France and says, I am the Immaculate Conception. When the girl tells this to a local priest, he says, What? No, she should have said, I am the fruit of the Immaculate Conception. But it doesn't matter now. Many people are starting to believe the Enlightenment went too far, that there is more to know than science and more ways to know it. There are other kinds of knowledge, the Pope suggests, other paths to the truth. Tens of thousands of pilgrims begin flocking to Lord, where a statue of Mary is placed in 1864, That same year, on another December 8th, the Pope releases The Syllabus of Errors, a document condemning rationalism and modernism and moral relativism, all the ways the world has gone wrong, enlisting 80 falsehoods from the Church's point of view. Quote, The Church ought to be separated from the state and state from the church false human reason without any reference whatsoever to god is the sole arbiter of truth and falsehood and of good and evil false the roman pontiff can and ought to reconcile himself and come to terms with progress liberalism and modern civilization definitely false. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art and made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Gehring. This is the final episode of the year. All new bonus episodes will begin in January as we look ahead to the start of Season 5 coming soon. Stay warm. Stay safe. Stay in touch by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening.